It's great to see you and uh, and thank you for joining us uh, online. Um, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 13. Over the summer, we're wanting to take a look at the subject of the church and to see how those of us uh, who are here, uh, how 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 do we feel about why the church matters and perhaps more importantly uh, what does the bible say on the subject because as we talked about last week if if you were around last week and especially in the wake of the pandemic some of our views some of our practices some of our habits around church and around being the church have been disrupted in the wake of the pandemic, so many of uh, the things of our lives have been um, disrupted. But as it comes to when it comes to the church and, and some of the disruption that many of us have experienced around being the church, coming to church, going to church, whatever that might look like. I suppose the question is, is that a good thing? Is that disruption, that interruption to our habits and our routines? Is that a, a healthy thing? And uh, over the summer, rather than just hearing from uh, me, we, we want to create some space whereby um, those of us who are in the room on a Sunday morning can discuss these things and reflect on, uh, firstly, what the Bible has to say, and then kind of respond to some questions. And I'll add those questions in at the end here so that um, you can join us in that reflection. And these are just short talks. Uh, time is short over the summer. Um, but uh, what we do on a Sunday morning is we break into small groups and discuss and reflect on the things that we've looked at uh, from the morning. For, but for now, let's let's start with the scriptures. Let's start with the Bible and a couple of very familiar passages um, from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to start in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 12. Just as a body though one has many parts but all its many parts form one body so it is with christ for we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body whether jews or gentiles slave or free and we were all given uh, the one spirit to drink even so the body is not made up of one part but of many now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body every one of them just as he wanted them to be if they were all one part where would the body be as it is there are many parts but one body the eye cannot say to the hand i don't need you and the head cannot say to the feet i don't need you on the contrary those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable and the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty while our presentable parts need no special treatment but god has put the body together giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body but that 
its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now, I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now, if you were here last week, we were reflecting on Ephesians chapters 2 and chapters 3, where Paul is describing how through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have all been brought together. And, and the language that the first century language that Paul is, is using, he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles, but that goes on throughout the centuries to each and every single one of us today. Individuals from all backgrounds, from all nations, from all ethnicities, from all walks of, night, all walks of life, joined together into this thing and in this thing called the church the ephesians chapter 2 uh, verse 20 says consequently we are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with god's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with christ jesus himself as our cornerstone in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. 
And we all have been joined together into this thing, um, this body, this field, this family, this household, this building, this army, this bride. And, and they're all New Testament metaphors for the church, um, whereby he, Jesus, is our peace, who through his death uh, on the cross has destroyed any any dividing wall of hostility as Paul puts it that may have existed between us and what he's done is he's reconciled us to himself and to one another in and through his body the church and so uh, from what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and and indeed in Ephesians 2 and 3 is that in spite of our many and varied differences what identifies us as the church is firstly unity now that uh, the dividing wall of hostility has been destroyed and love the most excellent way and among the very many things that are to distinguish us as the church unity and love are central and that is in spite of all of our differences, be they cultural or ethnic or theological or philosophical or, or whatever it may be that might try to divide and disrupt. Uh, one of the things that you will have heard us say if you've been around here for more than five minutes is that from our perspective, uh, both of the local church and of the wider church, is that we're kind of like this great big stew uh, and the vineyard is just one tiny little flavor in that stew. And so you've got the Anglicans and the Methodists and the Catholics and the Baptists and the New Frontier and on and on and on and on, on all of whom are these uh, diverse and different and wonderful expressions of the way that God, uh, back to what we were saying last week from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, is making known the manifold wisdom of God. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. And, and the same is true at a local level. We are all just the ingredients in this stew, the Southwest London vineyard. We're one body, but we're many parts. And in the vineyard and here at Southwest London vineyard, um, we are just a little bit of flavoring that the Lord would add to the mix. Some of us are a little bit of paprika, some of us are a bit of cayenne or uh, herbe de Provence or whatever it may be that the Lord has called us to and equipped us with. And that's why it's so important that we remain faithful to our mandate, that we keep our distinct and unique flavour. And Along with the rest of the church, we look to the scriptures which provide us with our plumb line and our yardstick from which we gain our understanding of our common ground, if you like, for belief. And it's this area of common ground for belief that is called orthodoxy. And it's the study of orthodoxy that is the basis for promoting unity, since by definition, that's what all Christians, that's what all followers of Jesus must agree upon. Orthodoxy literally means right opinion. And by definition, all true believers are orthodox because they hold to right opinions concerning the central and foundational Christian doctrines. 
uh, C.S. Lewis, Lewis put it uh, far better than I ever could in the uh, preface to his book, Mere Christianity. And, and what he's trying to do here is to assert what is orthodox, what, what orthodoxy is, and, 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 and what are the main and plain issues? What are the non-negotiables? Things like the incarnation, things like the resurrection, as opposed to what are those things that really are not worth going to the stake over? Things like suits and ties and hats on Sundays, or whether you worship with pipe organs or guitars, or whether you meet in Norman churches or like we do, drafty school halls, and on and on it goes. And just as an aside, for some reason, the church has a devastating history and demonstrated ability, which sadly continues to this day, spending an inordinate amount of time arguing and fighting and historically even killing over things that really aren't central to the tenets of the faith. But that's, uh, that's another talk. What C.S. Lewis says is this. He says, it, it, orthodoxy, is more like a hall out of which doors open into several rooms. If I can bring anyone into that hall, I should have done what I attempted. But it is in the rooms, not the hall, that there are fires and chairs and meals. And of course, the fires and the chairs and the meals are Lewis's description of the, the second tier, if you like, the, the separate ecclesiastical traditions unique to uh, the Anglicans or the Catholics or the Methodists or indeed the Vineyard. And you see, this view gets right to the heart of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, and indeed in Ephesians 2 and 3, as it al allows Christians to agree on the essentials, the things that unite us in love, what is orthodox, but to cling to our differences with humility and charity. We are absolutely to put down our foot on mere Christianity, the classical consensual tradition of the gospel, but at the same time, hold to our particular traditions as being important but very less certain than the first tier and all that to say in in this expression of the the body of christ called the vineyard uh, god has mandated us god has given us a, a unique flavor that we are to bring to the stew of the wider body of christ the 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 holy catholic church on matters of orthodoxy we are as agreed and as united and as shoulder to shoulder as you can get with our orthodox brethren but as a body we have our own rooms off the hallway of orthodoxy with our own meals and with our own fires our own understanding and outworking of what it is that god has called us to and and now because i need to stop um underpinning it all as paul writes so incredibly beautifully and eloquently in 1 Corinthians 13 is love. The greatest of these is love and where love is the true underpinning of all we do, whether that's as individuals, whether that's as a local church or whether that's as a wider family of churches called the vineyard or indeed as the church universal. When love underpins all of those things, not only will unity become our hallmark, 
But as Jesus Christ himself said in John 13, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples because you love one another. So here are three questions. You may have others that you want to reflect on, but here are the questions that we reflected on in small groups on, on Sunday. Um, first of all, um, what do you think of as being matters of orthodoxy? What are the things over which we should be prepared to go to the stake uh, for? Um, and what are those perhaps not so vital matters? What are the what are perhaps the, the meals and the rooms and the fires? That's the first thing. Second thing, in what practical ways can we celebrate and, and demonstrate difference, unity, and love? In what practical ways can we demonstrate and celebrate difference, unity, and love? And then lastly, uh, what specific things can you do this week to practice unity and love in the church. Thanks so much for joining us.